through this interview, you've named a lot of people, like really famous people that have made a legendary mark on America and has made a mark on the world. Frank Sinatra and all these people. Of of all of these people that you've met, is there one person that really sticks out that really made an impression on you? Just to let you know, because you should know. This is one show I was I've been looking really forward to because it's an old friend of mine, Steve Bender. You probably saw his documentary is out now, the Elvis documentary. And uh, Steve Bender, we go back about 40 years, and we're going to talk to him about what it was like in Hollywood back then, uh, his career, because it's more than this documentary, and all the successes he had. And uh, I, w I want you to watch this one because this is a man you want to get to meet, Steve Bender. This way, he'll cue okay. us in. Sound check's cool? All right. Are we on? Okay, so, hello, Steve Bender. <laughs> hello, hey, Steve. Hey. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of people watching you because you're super popular with your new uh, uh, Elvis documentary coming out. But I, I think we should start this show by breaking the ice because I've known you for probably longer than anyone who has interviewed you has known you. Am I right? I think you're right. I th yeah. Yeah. That's 40 yeah, so, over 40 years. Right, the last time the last time Steve and I hung out <laughs> was 40 years ago. And I think that was uh, mostly in uh, Paramount. Those were the days of of Paramount and right. also Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Circus, Circus which right. we did in St. Petersburg, right. uh, Florida. Yeah, we had the Patty LaBelle special. It was in that one. Remember yeah. remember that uh, that 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 reminds me you filmed the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus in St. Petersburg, Florida. Correct. And you had um, uh, Levon. Who was that guy? Levon Burton. Le no, no, no. It was. Who was the guy? Um, was the, the guy who got injured. Yeah, wasn't that Levon? He got injured. He got hit by a car too. Ben Vereen. Ben Vereen. Yeah. yeah. Somebody ran him over. No, no. Yes, yeah, somebody him. did run Ben Vereen oh. over. Okay. Yeah, well, on Pacific Coast Highway. That's correct. Yeah, he was crossing, and it was an actor yeah. who ran him over. Yeah. Who ran him over? Was he a jealous actor? No, it was an accident. <laughs> okay. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about when we're filming that show. Steve allow Steve goes, hey Frank, you're gonna you're gonna dress like a clown because there's this one scene where there's a captain on the airlines and he goes, Captain, there's I can't control the passengers. They're going completely nuts. They're acting like clowns. And then and then there was a view of a long shot going through the, you know, the 727 or whatever you used at that time. And there's all professional clowns, Ringling Brothers. Yeah, so he put me in wardrobe and I dressed as one of the professional clowns and so did your daughter. So we had a good time. There's so many good times that happened in Florida. You know, those were incredible years and... Uh, it, it, I, I kind of grew uh, to the point of where uh, I never saw any animal abuse of any kind. But uh, on the other hand, uh, I know there were uh, times, for instance, I heard that the, uh, it was really difficult to train bears. And bears we, on bicycles? We had a... Uh, bear act and i know that the trainer uh, used fear on that bear to get him to do yeah. all the tricks which was horrible right uh and uh in, in a strange way 
though I enjoyed uh, directing the circus because the circus is, uh, is like no other entertainment vehicle where there are no executives in the circus. Right. Everybody works right. and has a job. Uh, uh, I got to know Gunther Gable Williams, the greatest animal trainer in the world. And Gunther, uh, you know, when he wasn't the star of the circus, uh, he was out there uh, working with, uh, you know, putting the tent Everything, up, right. Uh, you know. Anything that had to be done. Exactly. Hands on. Everybody. Right. Uh, it was a traveling show on a train. And then I remember, uh, I think Richard Thomas was the first guest, and it was the first time Ringling ever allowed anyone on the circus train. And uh, Richard did uh, a whole intro on the train while we were... Uh, three, four, five in the morning, we're on the back roads in St. Petersburg, yeah. and uh, it was a the, blue train, right? Because there was a red train, blue train, whatever. Uh, well, there was there were two circuses right. that Ringling Brothers owned. One right. was called the Blue Unit, which right. was Gunther Gable Williams' German circus that that uh, Ringling bought, okay, or the Felds bought, and the other was the Red Unit, which was the traditional Ringling Brothers show with a different animal trainer and cast and crew and so forth. Uh, I, the first year, I was excited about doing it and decided uh, on my own to throw a party for everybody. Oh, so yes. uh, it, it was interesting to me because I, I asked if I could get a photo of the whole circus. Right. <laughs> and the owner of the circus, Ken Feld, said half of these people don't ever want their photograph taken <laughs> for fear right, that, uh, right. you know, they're, they uh, jump their, their yeah. bail right, or right. whatever it is. And, uh, exactly. <laughs> right. But it was, it was great camaraderie. I mean, I never saw uh, so many different, you know, uh, people from different backgrounds, from different countries, uh, et cetera, bond together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was all really international. A lot of people didn't speak English. Yeah, exactly. And and when uh, Chucko the Clown uh, was so proud of his new living quarters on the train, and uh, I I went to see it with him, and it was, it, it was like half, if, if that, right. of... of a normal room, right? Uh, and, and he was so happy. And yet, yeah. right? You know, he felt uh, promoted. You know, ex exactly. <laughs> yeah, and respected. And uh, but those were great years of experience for me. And we had uh, Michelle Lee. We had Sugar Ray Leonard on the show yeah. with his son. Right. We had Barbara Mandrell. Yeah. Uh, it, it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and and I'm. Thank God that there were no serious accidents while I was well, involved you know, in it. When you were when you were at the circus, and F Frank called me, and he goes, "You're not going to believe what happened." I go, "What?" He goes, I, "This guy. I just watched this guy eat it." I go, "Who?" Ben Vereen. So what happened to him? Like, Do you remember, what? Steve? I Do, remember yeah. exactly okay, what happened. Yeah. Was in rehearsal. Right. I remember yeah. his rehearsal. We're sitting out there. They were doing. Uh, Families were doing pyramids mm -hmm. where they would do Stack it like up on each other. five high, right. you know. And uh, we wanted to integrate Ben into 
uh, one, top of these, of the one of these acts and put <laughs> them at the top of, yeah. the, of it. And the top of it, up until Ben, was a nine-year-old kid. Right. And, uh, you know, they, they rehearsed. Well, the, the, the father uh, of a lot of the performers in that right. pyramid group uh, was playing macho with Ben. Right. And said, let's not use the safeties right. in case anybody falls or whatever. You know, that's not going to happen, so right. don't worry about it. And so during rehearsal in the afternoon, uh, Ben, who was very athletic, yeah, you know, he uh, goes to the top of the pyramid and he starts to lose his balance. Yes. And as a result, the kid below him can't. Hold him up. He's collapsed. And the entire pyramid right. falls. Oh, and oh. Ben actually breaks his shoulder bone. Yeah, he oh, landed God. right on and, his back. I was there. And, I saw the whole thing. Yeah. I'm like, oh, no. And when the owner of the circus found out about it, he went bananas. And I don't blame him because just from an insurance standpoint. Right. Well, you got a top said, Hollywood star that has a broken shoulder during a rehearsal. Not good. Exactly. And then when we actually did the show, uh, Ben being the trooper that he is yeah and i worked with ben a lot over the years yeah, he, in he other situations uh with even a a broken shoulder right uh he performed it yeah. in front of the live audience it, yeah. and uh he pulled it off and right. they didn't have a problem they all wore their safeties it would be a different you know? it'd be a different ball game today if somebody had that kind of injuries yeah. you have thirty thousand yeah. uh you know, attorneys. attorneys he'd be coming with attorney I'm business cards i'm going to remind you of this one thing that happened there see if you remember it do you remember the frenchman with the um, with the bison you know he had the only bison that uh that was that wouldn't that would kneel down do you remember there was a buffalo and that buffalo ran down and he goes hey and the buffalo got away do you, do I, I don't that? remember that. Okay, what so. I do remember is that we were rehearsing uh, the opening parade around the, the uh, excuse me, uh, we were rehearsing the opening uh, where the entire circus travels around the track with all the clowns and the elephants and what have you. And we had in the circus uh, a wonderful little person named Mishu the smallest person I ever saw in my life. In right. fact, he tried to get my attention one day, and I wondered, who's tapping on my kneecap, you know? <laughs> how tall? I looked how down, tall? and there... He was like, he was like the, the, part of the Ringling Brothers, they would always have the weirdest thing on both sides. So this was yeah. like the smallest human alive. And yeah. he was like this, he was like, he, he, probably like 30... Two inches or something? I don't know. He, he was a small Yeah, guy. he was so small. But he's proportionate. And uh, I, I think when Pee Wee Herman did his circus movie, yeah. he hired yeah. Mishu to, to be in yeah, it. Mishu movie. got popular. And he, he did. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, what happened in rehearsal is that uh, this carriage was being uh, pulled by these beautiful white uh, horses. Uh, I think they were from Austria or something like that. And uh, they were standing very, very quietly. And Barbara was uh, about to get into the carriage. And unannounced to any of us, the audio man decided to uh, test out his sound 
And the idea was that Barbara would sing while they're pulling this carriage around the track. Right. And as a result, he blasts the sound on these speakers that were attached. Sorry about that. We have... (laughs) Another fan calling. Yeah. (laughs) Another interview. Yeah. (laughs) And... uh, so it, we're in Steve's house right now. That's where we're getting the phone yeah. calls. So this, this is like actually at his house. So go ahead. I'm sorry. The, uh, the horses freaked out right. from the sound and yeah. they were startled. And all of a sudden they took off. Thank God Barbara Mandrell did not get in the carriage. Yeah. So she's standing outside watching like the rest of us. Uh, the door of the carriage is swinging open back and forth. And these horses are at full speed going around the track. And we had these huge, in the arena, these huge steel doors, but they were open. Open, right. And Gunther Gable Williams, the animal trainer, immediately springs to action and screams, close those doors, because if, God forbid, those horses... Get out got of out of the arena. They could have killed a right. pedestrian just right. walking by or right. whatever, and uh, that that was well. Maybe they hit terrifying. it from you. But there was a there was a buffalo, a bison, that they said no one could train a bison. It was in your show, and they said don't make sure because sometimes a bison didn't listen, and it was a French guy. And I remember being by the train. I was with these guys. And uh, maybe you're in production because, you know, I was hanging out in Florida and I was with the circus guys. So we're all hanging out. And all I heard was this Frenchman say, look out, look out. <laughs> and we look and something's coming our way. We, we dove into the train and this buffalo. Buffaloes are huge. Yeah, They're giant. like six, seven. I mean, they're, they're big things. Runs by and it's out of control. And it just went, it just kept going. Went to the, the gates. And then the French guy was chasing it. Look out! And it was, just, it was like, and I was going, oh, I, maybe they never told you about that. Like, don't tell the producer. But that actually happened. It's a big yeah. bison, buffalo thing. Yeah. And he, the same guy had uh, zebras. Remember he had the zebras that you're not, you're not supposed to be able to tame? Well, the only, tame. the only animal that I heard, uh, and Gunther Gable Williams told me, yeah. that he couldn't train was a giraffe. Oh, and yeah. he tried desperately. He had a little giraffe uh, with him, uh, a very young one, and he was trying to train it, uh, you know, on the circus lot. Uh, but he told me they're impossible to uh, uh, to train. actually get them to right. do tricks or, or whatever. So I was kind of happy, to be honest with you, when I started to read uh, you know, the SPCA got involved right. and Ken Field kind of uh, agreed that it was time to pack it in. Tie with pack it in. We, because you don't know what they were doing to the animals to train them. What you see is the end result and this animal's trained and you don't think like, are you abusing this animal? Because I know you're super, and me too, we're both animal lovers and, and I Oftentimes I say I like animals and dogs better than people, you know, so. Well, I have a theory that you're going to be judged in the afterlife by by the way you treat animals in this life. No, I agree. I've always felt that way. That was cool. They shut it down. But one thing I do remember is you, uh, in order to get the elephants from the train to the tent, it's called the elephant walk. And they put all those 18, I think there's 18 elephants. And you asked me, do you want to ride on an elephant? And I'm like, how do I ride on an elephant? And he, he, I don't know, so just, just go there. I'm thinking there's going to be like a saddle. I'm picturing a horse saddle. 
And then, and so I was on the number one elephant and I, and you sit behind the ears right on the neck and there is no seat. And I remember like almost doing the splits because this was the biggest elephant. It was a number one elephant leading the rest of the elephants and his ears were hitting my thighs. And as he's going up, his shoulder blades are going like this. I'm like, I really think I, I may slide off this elephant. That's the what are you thing. holding on to? Do you have a, a harness? No, there's nothing to hold on to. You're just squeezing him with your legs and you're kind of touching the back of his head. But these elephants are super smart. And sometimes they get pissed. And if they don't want you on, they just, the trunk, the trunk comes way over. And it did a couple times, not to throw me off. Just, you have to get to know the elephant. I was with the elephant for like three or four days and it smelled me. And then they, they look, their eyes look at you and they're like a dog. They either like you or they don't like you. And this one liked me. So you had to know the elephant. They have eyelashes. Just, yeah, really cool. Yeah, yeah elephant big eyelashes. eyelashes. But I remember almost falling off that thing a few times on the way to the, on the way to the ride. I was just, I was just hoping I wouldn't fall off because this, elephants are huge. Yeah, you, and you, you're falling you off. It. It's yeah. a step on you. Yeah, you get a step on you. So uh, thanks for uh, putting me on that elephant. <laughs> He's uh, trying to get rid of you. Yeah. Let Frank love, do it. Yeah. I love animals and so I, I especially love the elephants and hope yeah. as as a uh, as a society worldwide yeah. that we think enough of them to save the species because they yeah. are disappearing yes. every year. Every year. Yeah, uh, the habitat's being devastated. They're getting poached by the thousands, not not the hundreds, the thousands a year. They're yeah. still doing that, the poachers. And they actually have these people inside of those places that live out there. There's tribes. The same. It's kind of like the same people that take care of the gorillas. If you go to the mountain gorillas, there's actually groups of people that spend their life traveling with the gorillas. They, they follow them all over. And if there's a poacher, come bye-bye poacher because they're well-armed and they're not messing around. But the same they have to do with the elephants. But the black market is still there. It's disgusting. Well, they're going for the ivy. Yeah, for the, uh, for the tucks. Right. Exactly. Yeah. A shot to the head. If you ever, most people listening to this podcast have never even probably touched an elephant. I don't know. But if you ever worked around elephants or been around elephants, they're really, really, really smart. And they get to know you. And you can tell just by the way they're looking at you. They have a they have a memory. And they know exactly who you are. They know your voice. They know your look. And they, well, and growing, growing up in, in the 60s and early 70s at the San Diego Zoo, everybody's most world-famous zoo, right. you could, you, they would sell you peanuts to feed the elephants. Right. So you put your hand out with the peanuts and they grab the peanuts out. Oh, you remember this? Well, one day my mom was there and she was feeding the elephant and this elephant grabbed her purse, remember? Right. Yeah, remember. And my dad and my elephant got in a struggling match because right. <laughs> he's trying to pull the purse out of the elephant's yeah trunk but frank let me ask you something because you're bringing back some memories because i remember so i remember when steve you i think it was the you did the academy awards emmys. didn't you i, I did the uh, emmys emmys right the emmys, emmys grammys nationally for four years and i did it at each one of the networks that's when they they had what they called the wheel and you'd be at cbs one year and nbc the next year and abc the next year and then when Fox came into the picture, Fox uh, became the fourth of the, of the wheel. How did you know, how did you guys decide on who's going to be the host? That was, you know, what goes on behind the right. scenes, which the public is never, you know, Pretty in on. Because it seems like it uh, has a lot to do with, uh, you know, the uh, program director, uh, the sponsor, I mean, you, you get too many cooks in the soup. 
right. what they're trying, obviously, is to get the biggest name of popularity in the entertainment business uh, to host uh, the show. And normally, each network wants their most popular star on it. So right. it's very rare if you right. were at NBC that you had a, a CBS, CBS star. Right. <laughs> Who were the hosts when you did it? If you, you oh, I, I remember uh, uh, Eddie Murphy and Ooh. Joan Rivers co-hosted. Oh. Uh, Tom Selleck uh, yeah. hosted Good. one year. Um, let me think who else did it. But the Emmys, to me, was one of the easiest shows you could possibly direct because... Uh, and especially today, because uh, you 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 basically have little or no entertainment other mm -hmm. than you know the the, the presenters and the acceptors, and uh, yeah, that's true. And, and unfortunately, you know, it's all about uh, you know every uh, entity in the entertainment business wants to be acknowledged in prime time if they can. Uh, in the Emmys, and as a result, you have, uh, you know, you have two podiums, stage left and stage right, <laughs> and that's yeah, it. That's it. And, uh, yeah, you know, was, and, right. and then you've got to identify all the stars out in the audience, right. and before the show even began uh, or begins, uh, the art department puts uh, blow-ups of huge photographs of the stars in the seats that they're going to be in so the camera crew can orient themselves when, okay, when they, they get be. the call God. that, you know, you yeah. want shots you of want certain shot. people, yeah, want... they know where they're sitting. So so how did you get from Steve Binder as a child when you were, like, in elementary school to hosting the Emmys? Like, like how, where did this start? Like, how did you get involved in this in, in Hollywood? Yeah, what, what, what brought you in the uh, showbiz? Yeah. Was it planned? Yeah. Never planned. I never, ever, though I grew up in Los Angeles, right next to Hollywood, uh, it never entered my mind uh, that I would be in the, in the entertainment business. The closest thing I ever came to it, we had a very famous uh, film actress living on our block named Jean Tierney. Uh, she was in some wonderful motion pictures. Uh, one was called Laura. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a murder mystery with Dana Andrews as her co-star, uh, playing a detective, uh, thinking she was dead, and it turns out that her, it was her roommate who was murdered, and uh, she's still alive and comes comes back, yeah. and then you have to find out who the murderer is right, and so it. forth, which I think was Clifton Webb. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and uh, she was considered one of the most beautiful women. Uh, in Hollywood at the, at the time. time. And when she lived on our block, uh, which were modest middle-class homes, uh, but uh, turned out to be a wonderful street and neighborhood. Uh, there were many, many touch football games played. Right, old right. school. <laughs> yeah, Sandlot <laughs> stuff. Right, exactly. That, that's yeah. Southern exactly. California stuff, the way we did it. Yeah. Okay, so but, you're on the street, so... So what happened was uh, my first taste of show business, I lived a few blocks from a huge uh, public park, and I lived there. Uh, you know, I'd come home from school, head to the park, 
whether it was baseball season or football season or basketball season, I was there every day. And uh, it was uh, the only person that was uh, pretty famous in show business in our neighborhood was a young actor named Tommy Cook. And he was a, a radio actor. He played Little Beaver for the Red Rider. Oh my gosh. Wow. We got, you got seldom get airplanes like that flying overhead. Yeah. You're following uh, us. Right. And uh, Tommy uh, rounded up a group of us, and I think at the time I was probably nine years old or ten years old, and uh, they were making a Laurel and Hardy wow, uh, sure. movie. And they had a scene with a, a kid football team, and I remember being uh, shuttled to... Uh, MGM Studios in Culver City. And then it turns out that the baseball coach, uh, when when they started picking us to be in this movie, uh, he decided his his son wasn't there. <laughs> and as a result, I never got to do the movie because oh, yeah. he put his son in, a, in my place. Uh, but yeah. other than that, I had no desire to be in show business. And... Uh, I, at the at the time I was uh, when I was a young adult, I was going to the University of Southern California, and I was uh, registered in pre med. Uh, the truth being, I never wanted to be a doctor. I just wanted to make my parents proud and, <laughs> exactly. and do something that would make them proud of me. And uh, it, it was a case of where uh, I had the opportunity. Uh, to become a radio announcer at KUSC, which was the local university radio station. And uh, I started announcing classical chamber music from the LA County Museum uh, and uh, had a great time because it was just me and a, and a microphone and nobody else other than the engineer and uh, maybe one or yeah. two uh, students easy, from easy SC. Gig. Yeah. And and uh, I found uh, basically in my normal life I was pretty introverted, but once I was alone with that microphone, I could identify with, you know, to me if one person was listening, You're that happy. was right. that was success. The only right. thing that was important, and uh, as a result, I started to get some jobs uh, in other divisions of the university where. Uh, uh, the Air Force hired me uh, to narrate some training films for the Air Force, and I got an actual paycheck. <laughs> I couldn't nice. believe it. For, for and talking. It was probably about 30 bucks or something like that, but it was a right. real paycheck for, for doing that. And as a result, uh, I ended up, uh, when I got drafted in the Army, uh, they immediately wanted to put me in the medical corps because of my college background. Uh, but I uh, talked myself into uh, getting into, uh, in the beginning, what was called the, the Blue Danube Network, which was uh, all over Austria. And Austria at the time in 1954 was an occupied yeah, by country. The, by the Rus by the Germans. Uh, the Russian uh, no. Was it the Russians? Was, no, it was the Russians, the French, the English, and the Americans. 
Oh. And they used to drive around the MPs, the military police right. of each country, used to drive together in Jeeps uh, in every city and, and sort of were a collective uh, multi-country right. uh, occupation. Like, uh, like Interpol. Yeah, and, and I remember going to Vienna one year uh, on a train on the Orient Express, which was pretty exciting wow. to me. And, uh, but we had to keep the shades down because the Russians had training camps uh, from uh, Austria, Salzburg to Vienna, and they didn't want Americans uh, looking at their soldiers training in the field and so forth. And it was amusing to me because when I got to Vienna, uh, all the Americans kind of headed for uh, the bars and, the and playful things, yeah. and the Russians were marched into museums right. in Vienna, et cetera. And uh, I, I realized right then and there, and uh, you know, the, the kind of the difference between. Right. Uh, our freedoms in yeah, America exactly. and uh, the discipline of like being... we're in Germany. Let's party! Yeah. Yeah. Now we're going to Natural History Museum. And, uh, That's right, more exactly. fun. Anyway, yeah. to make a long story short, is I went from Austria when they gave Austria back to the Austrian government. Uh, we moved into Germany, and I was the radio announcer in Munich, Germany, and Nuremberg, Germany, uh, and uh, had some great experiences and uh, met a lot of people, uh, Americans who came over to work for uh, Radio Free Europe. And uh, it was quite an operation. And uh, the German announcers, I I remembered uh, distinctly, were amazed that American uh, disc jockeys uh, didn't need a script in front of them. We could improvise and... and, uh, you know, I did a show called the Munich Night Train uh, music show, playing records and right. so forth. And we had access to, you know, all uh, they would from Hollywood at, at uh, AFN. Uh, they would send us these huge discs uh, of all our favorite shows when we were civilians in America that had all the 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 records you ever. Heard in your life, practically, all the uh, drama shows. uh, Everything. You know, everything. And it it was an incredible experience. Well, I had met uh, uh, a gentleman who was working for Radio Free Europe at the time and his wife, who were living in Munich. And they sort of adopted me and uh, would invite me over to their apartment to have dinner once in a while, and we'd go to a movie. And uh, he... His name was Jerry Hausner, and Jerry had done like a hundred Lucille Ball uh, shows, Episodes, uh, yeah. playing the bartender and so forth. And he was partners with uh, an actor uh, named Jim Backus. And Jim Backus, I remember that name. Uh, well, Gillian's Gillian Island. Island, right? He was. Uh, he wasn't. He the. He was Mr. Howell. Dustin Howell the third. Exactly. Uh, and uh, I have memory. So Jerry said, uh, and Jerry was, uh, uh, when, when uh, Jim Backus did the voice of Mr. Magoo, which was I a very popular him. animated yeah. cartoon, uh, Jerry was Gerald McBoingboing, his sidekick. And Jerry said, you should get into radio when you go back and become a civilian again. 
and he set up a meeting for me at CBS Radio uh, with the director of Mr. Magoo, Pete Burness. And uh, we go to CBS in Hollywood, and I meet the program director. And the first thing he asked me is, are you uh, the son of Art Linkletter, who was a famous <laughs> radio yeah, personality? Right. Yeah. And I said, no. Uh, and I was confused by the question. He said, well, if you're not the son of a famous person who's already successful in radio, you'll never get a job in Hollywood. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you got to go to uh, Iowa or uh, New Jersey or someplace and, and get a job on a local radio station, spend a few years there, and then eventually right. you'll be experienced enough to come back to Hollywood oh and apply gosh. for a job in Hollywood. Well, it so pissed me off that I said, you know, the heck with that. And uh, I left his office. And as opportunity has it, uh, I, uh, I called an old high school friend of mine. Uh, and uh, we had lunch. And he said, Steve, uh, what, what are your plans? And I said, well, I'm waiting for uh, the summer to end so I can re-enroll and finish my college education. And uh, he said, well, instead of just hanging out and doing nothing for the next few months, why don't you try and get a job at a, at a studio or a network? Because uh, there are a lot of pretty girls running around yeah. <laughs> on their campuses yeah. and you might get lucky yeah, and, meet, and meet somebody, yeah. exactly. So I did, uh, <laughs> Uh, apply at CBS, and I applied at KABC, which is the ABC affiliate. And CBS called me a few days later and said, there's a, uh, a typing job open. Well, I had taken one typing job in junior high school. I could probably uh, type maybe 20 or 30 words a, a minute. Right. They're looking for 100 words a minute. Okay, no. And at the same time, I got a call from KBC saying, there's a mailroom job open. Would you be interested oh, in that? That's where that was. And uh, so uh, I had to swear to the guy who was in charge of the mailroom that I never wanted to do anything in my life except deliver mail. Except the mailroom, for yeah. him. You're here and for he, mail. Not he was all about loyalty. Right. And so I got the job, and it was a great job because I used to, I wasn't confined to an office. Right. And I got to walk on the lot and deliver mail to all the various departments and so forth. And I went to the programming uh, bungalow, and lo and behold, the head of programming at that time was a gentleman named Selig Seligman. And he was the, the head of KABC, the local affiliate of the network. And uh, he was, you know, said, uh, come on in. So I walk in his office and uh, he said, have you got time to chat? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we sat down and he said, uh, what would you like to be doing? And I said, I'd like to be sitting in your seat asking you that question. Oh my God. And he laughed and, and uh, started this long conversation of who I was and what I was doing. And he was fascinated that, that uh, I just come back from, from Germany, Germany and right. Europe because he was, as it turns out, aside from being the I think brother-in-law of the head of ABC uh, television at that time. Uh, 
He was a lawyer at the Nuremberg trials oh. after World War II. And Crazy. a real interesting guy. And as a matter of fact, he was responsible for a successful ABC series called Combat. I remember. And uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, when they were filming Combat with Vic Morrow, who yes. had that tragic helicopter death, right. uh, the uh, the back lot at MGM was like sacrosanct. I mean, it was it had all those great Gene Kelly and uh, movies and and uh, you know uh, Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney and you, you name them. And when Combat uh, was shooting on the back lot, uh, they they were shooting uh, uh, into these sets. <laughs> they were destroying them. All these you know, irreplaceable classic right. movie sets and so forth. And uh, so it was, uh, it was so fortuitous because he said, you know, Steve, uh, have you ever directed anything? And I said, no. And he said, do you think you could do it? Oh, no. And I said, I don't know until I'm given the right. opportunity to try. I said, I'm pretty good at picking up things I don't know and, right. and learning them. And he said, well, one of our local directors is uh, moving over to CBS and he's gonna uh, direct the Jack Benny show. Jack was a huge radio comedian and right. he transferred over when television hit to do the Jack Benny show, which was super successful. Yeah, for years. And uh, we're looking for a replacement for him on KBC. And uh, I've got a thousand guys standing in line waiting to see if they can get the job. But I got a, a funny feeling about you. And uh, if you're interested, I'd like you to meet the director uh, who's leaving. And uh, he took me up to the stage where they were uh, doing a show uh, with the, the wow. director turned out to be, uh, his name was Norman Abbott. And he was, uh, I guess, a nephew uh, to the famous uh, Abbott and Costello uh, comedy team. And uh, he was very friendly. Uh, when I walked in the control booth and I heard all this foreign language of, you know, the commands that he was making to right. his camera crew of right. set up and dissolve and right. ready and take. And it sounded like a foreign language. Right. I didn't know anything. Right. So I told Selig, I'm not sure I could do it because... <laughs> It just so foreign right. to me, and he said, "Well, sleep on, sleep on it." And uh, Norman invited me back the next day, and I went back the next day, and it was like a secret code that you can decipher, and all of a sudden it opened up the window of of uh, you know being able to understand what directors basically were doing. I had no experience whatsoever. And uh, he said, if you're interested, I want to give you the opportunity. And I ended up being a uh, full-fledged director on KBC in the Radio Television Directors Guild at the exact same time when the Screen Directors Guild decided to merge Oh, with the radio. With the radio right. directors. Oh, so you're in. And so right. I was grandfathered wow. into the Directors Guild of America. Oh. 
I think I had to pay fifty dollars or something like that. How, how old were you when when twenty two? When you became no, your, no, I really wasn't. Probably uh, twenty six. I was. Uh, let me think. I went into the army oh, right, when I was nineteen. Was army, right. So I came back at twenty two. So you're right. I was around twenty twenty three. Yeah. You know, twenty two, twenty three. Don't ever doubt years your brother, old. man. I'm always right. Okay. <laughs> so you're twenty two. Right. So, so you're. See, I didn't doubt. I mean, I, I all, ended up doing a slew of KBC shows, which included a paint. Uh, a painter who converted his craft into being called Chuckle the Clown, which was yeah, a popular huge. KBC right. show. And uh, I ended up directing uh, Al Jarvis in uh, a dance show of Swing, Waltz, and Cha-Cha. Uh, I directed so many What about of Steve Allen's show? Did you do a little bit? Well, well that came later. That's oh, later. Oh, these I are the walked away from. Right. And, and I was lucky enough... Uh, to be assigned to do, uh, which was the most popular afternoon show, probably in the history of KBC, uh, with a slapstick comedian called Soupy Sales. Yeah, Soupy Sales. And we were on five days a week. He was so good. Uh, and kids, college kids, were like yeah, crazy about him, Soupy. Right. We, I remember Soupy Sales. And the scripts were, in all honesty... Uh, they Improv. were basically based on dirty jokes with yeah. the punchlines yeah. taken out, but the kids all knew the punchlines <laughs> right, right, anyway. Right. smart. And, uh, and uh, you know, it was a great experience, and we were so successful that ABC, the network, decided to put it on uh, Monday nights on the full network of ABC. So uh, my first guest on that was Frank Sinatra, who wow. called me and asked if, Soupy would throw a pie in his face. And I found out later that Frank's son, Frank Jr., uh, hung out and was kind of half-raised by Soupy and his two sons. Uh, they were next-door neighbors. And Frank wanted to repay him a favor by <laughs> letting him hit him with a, with a pie, which he did. Wow. The next guest was Tony Curtis, who was yeah. very big at that time. And then the third guest was Mickey Rooney. And wow. then I got fired. Uh, what happened was the uh, network program director, I still remember his name, Sandy Cummings, uh, because after he got fired, he came to me for a job. Oh, my gosh. But uh, Which is, you hear that story quite a bit in show business. But uh, what happened was Sandy wasn't there when I was promoted to do the network show at the same time I'm doing five days a week, the local show. And he said, I don't want a local director doing my network shows. I want a network director. So he replaces me uh, with a network director. And the director calls me at home and says, how do you direct? How do you do this? Right? How do you do this? And I had to explain to him what well, I was Well, how did that make doing. you feel? Because I always tell people... Uh, it's really good if you get fired in life because, first of all, you never think you're going to get fired because you usually go to work thinking you're good. And, and sometimes you get fired for no nothing that you really did. But that had to take a blow out of you. You're just upcoming. You're young. And all of a sudden, hey, everything's going good. Network. I'm, I'm grandfathered in. Hey, by the way, Steve, we got to let you go. I mean, did it? What did, how'd you feel? 
spelled horrible. I quit. Horrible. I quit the local show. Yeah, just I decided said, no I'm more out. show business for me. Right. So I went home, planning to go back to school. Oh wow! You just walked in. And away. I got a call from my stage manager, Jimmy Baker, on Soupy, hey. and he said, "Listen, uh, Steve Allen may be uh, coming back, and he wants to finance a jazz series." Uh, which was called Jazz Scene USA, hosted by Oscar Brown Jr., who was very popular in that idiom uh, from Chicago. And I got lucky enough to get hired by Steve to direct 26 half hours with the greatest jazz artists in, in America at the time. Right. Nancy Wilson, Shorty Rogers, uh, uh, Cannonball Adderley, Stan Kenton and his big band, you know, it, it was phenomenal. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of doing that show at CBS. So you're back. You, I'm you, back. Yeah, I went to quit. And that's what you were talking about, just to interrupt you for a second. In Hollywood, that's the kind of stuff that happens. You can get destroyed here thinking it's all over. And then, oh, by the way, I need you on this set. Yeah, exactly. And then in the middle of it, I get a call. And it's the first time I ever spoke to him. Steve Allen calls me at home. Yeah. He said, you're doing a wonderful job on, on the jazz series. And uh, I just signed a contract with Westinghouse to do a five-night-a-week, 90-minute-a-night uh, wow. late-night show. That's a long and time. And I want you to direct it. And I said, I can't. Uh, he said, why? I said, because I haven't finished your jazz show yet, and I'm still working on it. He said, well, I'll tell you what you do. Get it started, and then I'll replace you. And uh, two years later, he replaced me. <laughs> but I had the greatest time in the whole world doing that Steve Allen show. And Did that you? was a time when, when uh, Johnny Carson had just uh, uh, accepted NBC's late night show. But ABC had him under contract and wouldn't let him start the show. And so we were the only popular late night show right uh, until the Johnny Carson you know until Johnny came on the air on the network but we were syndicated and we had the same uh, enthusiasm from our audiences who would you know months in advance try and get tickets to the live show and uh, it was it was so much fun and in that time period I got to meet everybody, not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera, who either guest appeared on the Steve Allen show or right. whatever. Yeah, Steve Allen show always had people popping in. And, and then yeah. uh, I was lucky enough where uh, the, the TV critic of the LA Times uh, was a gentleman named Cecil Smith. And Cecil wrote a whole article in the LA Times with my picture in it saying, uh, you know, uh, how, to, how to succeed in show business. Uh, With your and, and it talked about the jazz series and the Steve Allen show and how I was doing both of them at the same time. And then the phones just started ringing off the hook. Let me ask you something, Steve. You heard the term imposter and imposter syndrome, an imposter. No, what is it? And that's when, did you ever feel when you were directing, because you're young, you're going that... If these guys really know how insecure I was or how I really felt that this is like too big of a job for me, did you ever get nervous when you're when you get hired as a director and you're going, did you ever feel that or did that ever happen to you? Well, I have a new documentary out on Elvis Presley. 
and I actually talk about that. I think every actor, singer, dancer, director, producer, whatever, uh, you can't help but say to yourself on the inside, Am I an imposter? Uh, right, I mean, right. Uh, you feel like I'm going to get discovered or someone uh, better than me and they're watching me. Exactly. Right. And, and I'm always Okay, good. And it, it's not just me. <laughs> uh, I, so that would be interesting to hear about that. Yeah. yeah the show. I mean, I'm... Th- Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, I, I, I want to keep talking about, because I want to know how we got... So what I remember about Steve, and I was hanging out with Steve for a while, is is not all that background, because I was before my time, but you always were involved more in musicals. I remember meeting uh, Patti LaBelle with you. I remember... Smokey Robinson. We were with Smokey Robinson uh, many times, and uh, you were super good at musical. Is that because when you're a kid, you like you're like wanting to be the DJ, or you like records, or why were you so good at, at this particular genre, musicals, compared to like? Well, I think it was pictures? good. I think it was good at all of them, but I think well, yeah, but it gravitated like, what, 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 a little bit yeah, towards it, that. But or, no, but a Motown accepted him, right? So he he was almost like um, you talk about diversity, progressive. Steve, Steve, I want to talk about the time where you put uh, uh, you know blacks and whites. Intermix because when you're from Southern California, at least us and him, we don't really think about that. But other parts of the United States are like, what's going well, on? We weren't as divided deal. as the other countries. Yeah, they're racist all over. But it seems like the Motown Motown wanted you f- for them. I remember Patty LaBelle. I, I just remember specifically if Steve's doing it, I'm in good hands. It's going to be a good show. And I, I was wondering why they were so attracted to you being the director. Have well, you ever thought I, about that question, huh? Because that's what stuck out of my mind when I kept uh, going yeah, I was to. The same I went thing. to oh Lionel Richie. I remember right. we had to go get break dancers. There was this big show, and they needed break dancers. Remember we and we they auditioned and uh, for some Lionel Richie something, and I'm like, man, this guy loves Mo- Motown, and Motown loves him. That's well, what was in my mind. Does that make sense? To rekindle any memories? The, the truth is, I always loved music. I mean, yeah. when I was a little. Kid. Yeah, like the us. first album I ever got was uh, uh, 1930s uh, broadcast live on CBS radio. Uh, and it was a song called, or it was more than just a song. It was, it was a whole story song called Ballad for Americans. And the lead singer was Paul Robeson, who was very, very famous and eventually... Uh, you know, he because of the black uh, racial thing in America, he defected to Russia in later years. Uh, but uh, and I was a, uh, a voracious reader in those days, and I loved to read John Steinbeck and uh, Grapes of Wrath and and East of Eden, and they kind of influenced me. But I own uh, I didn't focus on just doing variety. Uh, I, I've also done drama. and uh, I did a motion picture. Uh, one of the first ones that I did uh, was, uh, I guess, the first rock and roll movie called The Tammy Show with, uh, you know, nobody could have predicted that I think out of 10 acts on the show, nine of them are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame today. And... Uh, 
at the time I worked with them, we didn't even know that when the Stones were on that Mick Jagger was going to be Mick Jagger and wow. the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Uh, we didn't know it was going to be Diana Ross and the Supremes. Right. Uh, it was with Marvin Gaye. Uh, you know, the biggest star on that show at the time was Leslie Gore, who had huge hits with uh, it's, it's Judy's Turn to Cry and so yeah. forth. And... Uh, the Tammy show is a lot more important today, historically, right. than it was right. in 1964, I think it was, when I, when I actually did it. Uh, I did a movie uh, with James Whitmore, who was a, uh, an A character actor, basically, in film, uh, an ex-Marine, and James did uh, a wonderful stage play called Give Him Hell Harry on the life of mm -hmm. Harry Truman. And uh, we filmed it, and, and it was a huge, uh, you know, artistic success and did pretty well at the box office as well, independently. And uh, uh, so, uh, I don't know. I, I just, uh, when I hear music, just about of any type, uh, there's something... You know, I, I try and uh, and go to symphonies, and when you're hearing a live orchestra with a hundred pieces, right, it's, it, it, it's food for the soul. Right, and it, it just gives me a feeling uh, that I can't even uh, describe with words. Right, uh, of how I feel, and being able to work with uh, such incredible artists over the years. Uh, you mentioned. Uh, you know, earlier on, we talked about, uh, you know, uh, Buffalo. And uh, I, I did the last uh, John Denver special uh, before, oh, before his, he crashed. his, his, his yeah. death. Right. Uh, and, oh, so he did the last one. Uh, and we did it. Uh, it was it was called a, basically um, Montana Christmas Skies. And it was a Christmas special. But we shot it on an Indian reservation up in northern Montana near the Missouri Breaks. And uh, they had a herd of buffalo. And I got to go out there. And uh, oh, awesome. it was an awesome experience. Yeah. I mean, just seeing them. And then all of a sudden, the leader, uh, the lead buffalo was huge. Yeah. Uh, I, re I remember, I may still have it, but I remember uh, when... Uh, they stampeded away from where we were uh, with the Indians. Uh, I remember picking up uh, hair from his tail and, uh, you know, and bringing it home. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you think that the, the, the plains in Thousands states... Of millions. Of, of millions. Oh, millions of, of buffalo. Sorry, and, uh, millions. Etc. And it then probably good eating. And then we talked about elephants, and I yeah. I had a love affair with them, and yeah. uh, we were on the Steve Allen show one year, and we brought uh, uh, we had two things that stand out. One is we had a tug of war with our crew and an old elephant. <laughs> and, <laughs> the elephant uh, won. And uh, I'll never They're forget so it because. Uh, I asked the trainer what would happen because we had uh, wooden barriers so the elephant wouldn't run down the street 
yeah. live in Hollywood. Right. And I said, what would happen if we removed the barriers? And the trainer said, oh, he's an old elephant and he'll probably run out of breath halfway down the street. And, <laughs> Come back. Uh, and that, that'll all that happened. So I told the, the uh, crew, uh, when we actually do this on the air live, uh, take the barriers away and let's see what happens. <laughs> and so... Uh, you know, we opened the show and, and we had like 50 guys and gals from our crew on one end of the right. rope and, yeah. and right the elephant on the other end. And in one yank, you see 50 bodies flying <laughs> on the on the pavement, on the street. And then the elephant takes off. Right. And he's running down La Mirada in Hollywood. <laughs> and, uh, and the hysterical thing about it is at the same time, coming from the opposite direction is a little Volkswagen. Yeah. <laughs> and he turns onto the street, seeing this charging elephant right. coming at him. And you hear his gears grinding on his car as he backs up. And uh, we never saw him again or talked to him. But the you elephant? can imagine, oh, no. no, the guy who was in the Volkswagen. Yeah. So Should you can imagine his side of the story. Right. Uh, and then uh, in... Uh, uh, Sparks had a little tiny elephant that they used at their gambling casino uh, in Nevada. And so uh, we booked the little elephant and we parked him on the on the side street next to the theater, uh, which became kind of famous called La Mirada. And it was next to the Hollywood Ranch Market. And uh, this little elephant uh, I fell in love with and every chance I had, I would run out to the elephant and talk to him yeah. and, and they remember uh, you they're smart you know, and uh anyway <laughs> right before we we get ready to do our show uh i go out and it, his trunk is is like a pretzel it's all twisted and and uh i'm curious and and uh, i get closer to him and all of a sudden he rears his trunk back and sneezes the entire gutter on me from oh, Amarada. And I'm ready to go on the air, and I am covered from head to toe with... Elephant with, uh, slime? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I snuck up into Steve's dressing room, and luckily we were almost the same size. Yeah. So I took a shower in his dressing room real quick, put on his clothes. To this day, you know, uh, unfortunately, Steve passed away quite a few years ago. But he never knew what I uh, what I had done and what had happened out on the, on the street with this little elephant. But I've had so many great experiences <laughs> like that. That reminds me of a story I'm going to tell you right now. Maybe you remember. We were going to go to the Emmys, and uh, I was going with you, but I had nothing to wear. Okay, well, like I mean, I had clothes, but I'm like, I I'm, I can't go. I'm just I'll just hang here. You know, it's the Emmys. And he goes, No, I have a suit. Try this on. It was one of. It was one of you told me it was one of Elvis Presley's suits you had from a, uh, a movie and you had it in your closet, and I put it on, and it fit me perfect. I, I didn't have any yeah, Elvis okay, so, Presley suits. Okay, so there was a okay there was a suit that you you said. Yeah. I mean, I remember maybe you're bullshitting me, you know, like maybe, but you said this is a suit, and I was it came off of a Elvis Elvis set, and I put on it, and it was like forty trigger. I'm like, what? So I wore that. Yeah, and I was, I, I was I may have. I oh, mean, so you're I, just BSing me. So I really thought it was like, you, I'm telling you, you said that to me. The thing, you know, this is one of the things that I think this is one of, did it. something about Elvis. I'm like, oh, I know you knew the guy because 
He just wants you to return the suit. Yeah, well, yeah, it's yeah. been 40 years. It's no, time to I'm get no, it back. But what I was going to tell you is that when I was talking to my mom, because my mom used, used to talk, um, she goes oh, yeah, she's, in her accent, because she's neurotic Jewish, tell Steve we st- you still have the suit. You must return it. It's in my closet. <laughs> That's true. And I'm like, she called me today. I'm like, what suit? And she brought up this huge memory. Uh-huh. I'm like, what? Don't you remember you're going to catch? She, she's going to remind me. I'm like, yeah, I remember something like that, but... Anyway, there's a suit. It could have been. Yeah. So the the actual costume designer of the Presley special uh, that I did uh, was a a great designer named Bill Ballou. Yeah. And Bill actually made me a suit, and that may be what you're referring to. Oh, maybe that is, but it fit me Uh, good, and I was wearing it. I just remember going like, "Okay, Ma, it's not like I'm trying to rip." She remembers Rami. Yeah. Talking, talking to your mom at, at the house and, and your, you, they would like your daughter and your mom would talk all the time and they were just like the really nice conversations they would have. I mean, that's, that was a long time ago. And I think they had gas stations or something. They, they, My dad uh, had a uh, service station downtown uh, near the uh, L.A. market. And uh, I mean... You know, it, it's interesting. I was so blessed with having great parents. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, so are we. Who really, yeah, I know. And Rami always, uh, my my youngest daughter, yeah. always thought your mother was like her yeah. second mother. I yeah, mean, exactly. She really, uh, yeah. uh, you know, great, fond memories. But uh, it's, I, I think we all are shaped as children by the environment and mm-hmm. our parents. And my parents, who never had any of the things that my sister and I were given by them, uh, you know, uh, devoted their life to us. Right. And and uh, we never knew we were poor. Yeah, we, we yeah were, same here. We were middle class, <laughs> you right, know, right, right. basically. But uh, as an example, uh, I. I have an older sister, and and when she went to high school, uh, her biggest complaint was that all her girlfriends had three or four cashmere sweaters, and she only had one. Yeah. Well, we didn't realize she was lucky to get the right, one exactly. because right. it was a real struggle for my parents to afford to, to give us things like that. And and yet, you know, uh, you know, my dad vicariously. Uh, I, I've, as much as I love my parents and I, I truly love them, uh, you know, I have great regrets that I, I should have and could have done so much more for them. Yeah. Uh, now that I, I, you know, I matured into somebody who really could appreciate what they had devoted to their children to give us good educations, though they never. Uh, you know, they barely finished high school because they could never afford to go to a, a college. My right. dad had to, to to work to support his family, and uh, you know, and and I'm sure he hated. I don't know if he hated, but certainly didn't think of himself as ending up uh, pumping gasoline and changing tires right. uh, for his whole life. Right. And uh, you know, he. he uh, uh, he wasn't. He didn't speak a lot, but when he spoke, it meant so much to me. I remember when I was in Europe, 
my mother would send me care packages of <laughs> food and and uh, write these long letters to That's me. And my dad would do one or two lines at the bottom right. of her letter, yeah. and that meant so much right. to yeah. me. Dad you know? wrote me. Yeah, but that's a lot of people, I think, they come to a, per, a point in their life where they look back and they go, you know, I wish I would have said something or told them how much you love them. And it, and it happens all the time. So I would say that uh, anyone who has a chance to do that, you know, don't wait. You know, tell those people that you love what they mean to you because you'll be surprised and, you know, ask them those questions. Like, you know, what I'm asking my mom, what, what, what was your best day of your life? Or, what, you know, what made you have the most fun? And, and you'll, you'll end up having these good conversations when you get older because you finally realize this is just one person, my dad, who met another person, my mom. They didn't know each other because when you when you back in the day, you think they're they're all together, like they're just this couple, and then you're the kid, and they're two magical people, but they're two individuals that had different lives. So it was fun to do the history. So make sure you tell people you love. There, them. there was a film, and that's great advice, Frank. Uh, there was a film uh, by Ilya Kazan, and then. Uh, Barry Levinson made one as well on their families and their roots. And uh, they were really interesting because in both cases, what really tore them apart was economics, yeah. money. Yeah. Right? The richer any member of the family got, they would leave the neighborhood with their brothers and sisters Behind. and cousins and right. aunts and uncles and what have you. And, and they'd move to a nicer neighborhood or whatever. But uh, in the beginning, and I remember growing up, all my uncles and aunts on both sides of, of my mother and father's family, uh, we were all one big unit, basically, right. here, yeah, living in the same environment. Same neighborhood. Same ec uh, economical status. That really does keep the family together. And you're right, when, when somebody like succeeds or goes a different route, it kind of breaks up that. But uh, uh, yeah, I guess being broke keeps it tight. <laughs> I, I, have we a, I have a good question for Steve. I don't know if it's a good question, but it's a question. So through this interview, you've named a lot of people, like really famous people that have made a, a legendary mark on... America has made a mark on the world. Frank Sinatra and all these people. Of, of all of these people that you've met, is there one person that really sticks out that really made an impression on you? That was me. Other than Frank. <laughs> Frank does that to everybody. They, they basically, uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to work a lot with Diana Ross. Mm -hmm. When you work for Diana... Uh, she makes you feel like you're the best. And, uh, you know, we've had this incredible relationship over the years. <coughs> Excuse me. Culminating probably with Central Park during yeah, the huge rainstorm. Yeah, Diana Ross and Central Park. I remember that. Uh, but, you know, with all the stories of, uh, you know, Diana's ego and, and uh, how difficult she is and so forth, uh, I've had this great relationship with her, uh, not just as an entertainer relationship with the director, uh, but, you know, she's... Kind, would you say? Very kind person? Not necessarily from... Yeah, I'd, I'd say yes, but that's not right. what outstanding. What's outstanding is the commitment she makes to every project she does. She gives you everything she's got 
And, uh, you know, she's fun to put pictures to. Uh, and uh, here's a perfect example of what we were just talking about. And organically, something happens uh, while I'm shooting a, a anything, a song. First time I worked with Diana, which was early on a CBS special uh, that Michael Jackson was on and Quincy Jones was on and Larry Hagman from yeah, Dallas was Jeannie. on, oh. et cetera. And uh, I shot it at CBS and then I showed it to her after and she was doing a song from The Wiz called Home. And uh, there was this very specific emotional moment and... Uh, she turned to me and she said, you can't use that shot. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, you can see my veins in my neck when I'm hitting a high note and uh, I, I, I don't want to use it. I think it looks ugly. And I said, Diane, if I pull back at this perfect moment of you know, the song and the emotion and you singing, uh, it, it would be a real mistake. And I, I, I want to leave that shot. I, I, if people are looking at your veins or your neck while you're yeah. singing, you know, uh, you've missed the whole point Corey, of, right. of, of what we're doing. And so she bought into it and she said, okay. And then the show got great reviews. And uh, after that, uh, she never questioned my judgment. I mean, we just had, uh, you know, she she wanted to come to editing. Well, all stars want to come to editing, but editing is boring if you really don't love it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and oh, especially yeah. as an observer, it's oh, a yeah. lot different than if you're actually doing it right. yourself. Yes. And she would last about 15 minutes or so and say, oh, yeah, I'll see you when it's finished and so forth. But I've always enjoyed uh, uh, working with her. Early on in my career, I had the great opportunity for a few years to work closely with Burt Lancaster, uh -huh. the actor. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of anti-war uh, projects uh, while the Vietnam War was raging on and so forth. And uh, I, loved, I loved working. The bigger the star was, the less ego. And I found over the years, in, in so many cases, I've been so lucky because I've been able to work with people who, when you walk on a stage, they don't give you the attitude of, I'm the star, I'm in control, I call the shots. It's a team. Yeah. Uh, when I work with Elvis Presley, from, from the very first day, uh, you know, we were totally together on trying to accomplish the same thing which is to have Elvis rediscover his, himself and his, in his own talent. And, uh, you know, I was the director, he was the star, but I didn't put him on a pedestal. I didn't treat right. him like he was special. Exactly. Because he was the star and so famous. And, and I think he gave me the respect, which made me want to... Do it more. Make, right, it, yeah. make it great. And, and, uh, was he easy? Then he was easy to work with, or did he need a lot of directing and say, no, Elvis, do this and that? Or did he have like this natural? He, he was too easy to work with. He okay. was, uh, he never questioned anything <laughs> that I asked him to do or, 
or redo or whatever. And it was incredible that on a television special that an artist of that magnitude worked so hard to be so good on it uh, every step of the way. I mean, whether it was the gospel segment or the, the uh, guitar man sequence, uh, you know, it, he gave a hundred percent of himself every single thing he did on the special. And when I look at the special now, uh, which is over 50 years ago, right. 1968, uh, you know, I feel like I could have shot it this year. Right. It's not dated at all. I mean, it, it uh, you know, usually on a show, uh, you know, a costume, a set, a prop, a whatever, uh, dates the show where you know it was right. done years ago. In this Elvis show, for whatever reason, and it's getting so much play right now between Baz Luhrmann's uh, Warner Brothers movie that was so successful uh, to, uh, you know, the hundreds of books that have been written on it and the, the, the stories that are, that are told about it, etc., and then with this new documentary that Paramount uh, and uh, uh, my partner, uh, my book partner, uh, Spencer Proffer and, and uh, John Scheinfeld, the, the uh, documentary director, mm -hmm. I'm real proud of it because it really uh, tells the story from an honest standpoint. There's no BS in it. Right. Uh, there's no stroking and... and uh, distorting who he really was, uh, you know, uh, and, and I think, uh, at some given point, especially when I got into the improv, uh, portion of the show, uh, where he really rediscovered himself at that moment, I could see it in his body posture. I could see it in his attitude and so forth. Uh, you know, there was no holding back. He knew this was make or break, and and uh, and he made it. You know, and and uh, one of the the you know, I always use an example. Uh, I did years ago a Debbie Boone special, and she had just come off a big hit record, and NBC was was touting her as you know their their new star. And I loved doing the special. We did it in Detroit, practically all in location. Uh, we're at the Detroit Art Museum for one of the production numbers. Uh, we're at a uh, laundromat to do a dance number right. <laughs> on all the, the uh, machinery. And uh, I always said to myself, because we were not acknowledged at the end, that it was an original musical that, that uh, a writer that I had worked with on a, on the big show uh, had written. And it was about a, 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 a company trying to get the Broadway to, to open on Broadway with a Broadway show. And at the time she was actually doing that with a production of Seven Brides for Seven oh, Brothers. That's, yeah, there was a movie too for and, that. Uh, yeah, and, uh, but anyway, we took advantage of that troupe being there and uh, bonding together and so forth. And we wrote an original musical based on trying to get to Broadway. And uh, it didn't get any, you know, rave anything. We didn't get any Emmys for it or, or what have you. 
But I always felt, you know, uh, if I had a hot artist that year, like a Barbara Streisand, it might have won a whole bunch of uh, gold statues right. and so forth. And timing and luck has a lot to do with all of our careers and, and our futures. And I love, uh, I do a lot of teaching. And uh, I spent 25 years teaching a directing and producing class at USC. Uh, and I have an army of students who took my class, who many still stay in touch. And uh, one in particular is a super successful author. Brad Thor, who has mm -hmm. a slew of uh, hit books uh, put out by Simon & Schuster. I understand he signed a movie deal where they're going to start making uh, uh, movies nice. of, his, of his book characters. And uh, But uh, I always tell my students uh, the one key uh, and, and part of my success uh, is I never tried to to lie to anybody or to uh, fake something I didn't know. If I didn't know something, yeah, you said I asked people, there are all kinds of people out there to help you. And I've been blessed with, with you know, my crews of camera people and audio and, and lighting and sound and uh, who I, that's my education. Uh, you know, I went from grammar school to get my master's doctorate degree by the knowledge I picked up from, from the all other these people. pros who, who are willing, more than willing, to share their, their talent and their information with you if you just are honest with them, you know, you just level with them. And uh, I can't tell you all the director of photography, uh, you know, I got the privilege to work with some of the greatest, you know, Laszlo Kovacs uh, uh, comes to mind, uh, you know, uh, I used a lot of the David Wolper documentary uh, cinematographers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I got to work. Uh, uh, I did a show uh, that only aired once on CBS for two hours in primetime called Rolling Stone Magazine. Uh, it was their anniversary. I, I don't remember which one, whether it was the 10th or the 30th. Or, yeah. I, I don't know. And... It was, it was so far ahead of its time that it got completely yeah. <laughs> ignored. But uh, I, you know, I had Martin Sheen on it and Sissy yeah. Spacek and, wow. <laughs> and uh, you know, Bette Midler with Jerry Lee Lewis singing Great Balls so of Fire. And, and I had Gladys Knight uh, and the Pips sing with Art Garfunkel, Bridge Over Trouble Water. Water. Right. And, uh, you know, there's some classic things uh, in it. Uh, but it, it uh, as I said, it was, you know, I either got a, a fan letter saying it's the greatest show I ever watched on television or it's the worst show I right. ever watched on television. And that's okay yeah. with me. I mean, it, it, the end result is, you know, it's in the hands of the viewer and they control, you know, uh, you know, has, has a lot to do with what time slot you're in, how much promotion the networks are going to give you and uh, advertising and so forth. And the one thing I've learned is uh, the more time after you do a project that you have to spend promoting it and, and telling people when it's going to be on the air and how they can watch it and so forth, uh, 
get the better because I always wanted my shows to air instantly yeah. the minute I finished them. And I realized there's no time, yeah. to, no time to promote, promote them right. or advertise them and so forth. But uh, one of the shows that pops into my mind that I loved doing uh, was the Olivia Newton-John special. Really? Yeah. And I had uh, guest stars <clears throat> were, were Abba and Andy Gibb from, from you know, the Gibb family. Right. Abba, and, the, group, the band Abba? Yeah. yeah and nice. uh, I think it was their first appearance in America on a yeah. Were they from special. Sweden or something? Mm-hmm. But, Sweden? Yeah. They, they sold more... Uh, gross product in Sweden than the Volvo car did. Wow. And they were so yeah, popular huge. in their day. But I had them all uh, singing backgrounds for each other. I didn't hire background singers. I said, you know, when Olivia is singing, Andy and Abba will will support her with the background singing. And, and when Abba's on, Olivia and Andy and so forth. And it was a wonderful experience because they... They bonded. bonded right. Uh, I did the same thing with, with when I did John Denver's uh, last special, is that uh, you know he brought his band with him, uh, and I had them uh, basically with the guest stars that I put on the show, uh, all do uh, self-contained all their their uh, musical numbers and the background singing and so forth. And they enjoyed it. I mean, it wasn't a case of, uh, you know, it's beneath us to, to be singing backgrounds to a lead singer. Uh, the, it was just the opposite. They, they loved they want, it. Okay. And they, uh, you know, they, they had a lot of fun, uh, you know, just plain old, you know, singing like they probably did before they were famous, you know. So with Elvis, the one thing you mentioned that was that I thought was interesting actually was good is that a lot of the books that are written about him and a lot of the documentaries are third person like hearsay i know a guy who knows a guy who did this but yours is different because it's first person correct yeah when i did elvis it was the first time nobody from the elvis presley world was even involved uh, at one point, Elvis asked me to hire uh, his, a musical director who was all tied up with Nancy Sinatra at the time, mm-hmm. Billy Strange. And uh, at some point before we even began pre-production, I fired him and brought in my own musical director who had worked with me on the Olivia Newton-John, uh, I'm sorry, uh, who had worked with me on the Petula Clark, Harry Belafani special. And preceding that, uh, he had worked with me on the Leslie Uggams, who was starring on Broadway at the time. Uh, And it was very famous for the Mitch Miller show on television, where you kind of followed the bouncing ball and sang along and so forth. But uh, that's the crew. And out of all of the 30-some people that I put together, going back to my hullabaloo days... uh, this entire group was handpicked to be the brain thrust of of the of the uh, specials, uh, and it was uh, we'd have a think tank, and I didn't care what your title was, whether you were the cue card holder or or the head writer or whatever. We were all equal. We just threw away our our titles and our. our 
how much salary we're being paid, which was nothing in those days. And we, we just sat uh, bouncing around. You have a blank piece of paper, you have a star, what are you gonna do for an hour? And, and we would just build layer after layer of somebody come up with an idea and somebody say, I have a better idea on top of that and so forth. And they don't do that these well, days. Brainstorming, they call it. It's all about money now. It's about right. you know, uh, the the least Clicks. we have to, the least we have to hire somebody and bring them in early and pay them, the better you know. So uh, after we conceive what the show is, then we'll hire the producer right. and the director and the writers and so forth and so on. They did it back. They did it opposite. How was Elvis with you? Just like your. In between sets, you're talking to Elvis, normal guy, hyper, totally stress, mellow. Uh, for me, totally normal. Yeah. And and I was not a fan of Elvis when I started into this whole thing, and I became a huge fan after I realized it, it wasn't Colonel Parker and his uh, publicity machine. It was an RCA Records and their publicity machine. Uh, this guy was special and really had the talent. Is it true that he didn't? I heard he didn't take any singing lessons. Is that is that right? Was just, uh, I don't know. I didn't ask. Yeah, him. so I heard you think it was going with Frank Sinatra and Frank Sinatra. Oh, I don't know. I don't think they had guitar lessons or singing right. lessons. Well, I'm interestingly sure enough, he always put himself down as a guitar player, huh. and yet every guitarist I ever met who had worked with Elvis or really known him well, uh, totally respected. Right. You know. The uh, uh, there's a young kid uh, who won, I think, uh, American Idol or something, who was on the show, who was born 20 years after Elvis had passed, but now devoted his life to to you know being a tribute artist right. to Elvis, and uh, he, he when he when he talked on the documentary, uh, you know. It's as if he knew Elvis, yeah. first person, because he had studied him so carefully and so forth. And it was a good, you know, uh, perspective of uh, why the Elvis name and, and image is so popular right now uh, is because he's adding new generations uh, to his fan base. And uh, That's nice. Know, the it's, king it's, uh, lives who, on. Who made that design? There's all, I'll see the Elvis in this big letters, E-L-V-I-S, and then he's standing there with a guitar. Is that something that came my, out of? My art director uh, was Gene McAvoy, and Gene was the art director on the CBS Judy Garland series. And I remember uh, when she did her show, she had a big in lights Judy. Okay. And I thought... You know, so you thought of that. What yeah. would be better than yeah. to, to do it with the Elvis name? Yeah, I love that. That's and, like uh, such a good image because it's, it's like that's the thing that always sticks out. I think it sticks out with a lot of viewers. When you think of Elvis, I always picture that big sign and he's standing there, he's holding exactly. his guitar. Yeah. And that's well, I'll, I'll so tell that you, was your idea. I'll tell you an interesting story is that uh, when the head writer of the special, uh, Alan Bly, came to me and uh, we were planning the opening where he sings, uh, if you're looking for trouble, you came to the right place. Uh, we got to get Steve some water. Let me grab you a cup of water. You, you keep talking, but give me a second. Or just keep going, but I want to get Steve a cup of water.
Frank's the water boy. <laughs> I'll take that. Steve, like the water boy. Set. He didn't think about me, his you, brother. He just like You know, uh, the water comes from the thing. Yeah. Rami, can you show him? He's doing it. Oh, okay. I got you. The filtered water. I'll get you one too, Mark. Anyway, the, the writer, the head writer came to me and he said, Steve, do you think we could get 100 Elvises? in that opening shot where you pull back from from Elvis and behind him uh, you, you see people look like Elvis right. in the background. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. And uh, so uh, I had a great executive producer on, on the Elvis special, Bob Finkel. And Bob never got involved in the creative process, but what he did, which was brilliant, he kept Colonel Parker away from me and Elvis, and we were able to work together, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, uh, which really, you know, it's amazing to me. Uh, I didn't even appreciate it until years later when I thought about the job that, that Finkel yeah, had done. Yeah, he threw interference because I heard that Parker guy was always like uh, so controlling over Elvis, everything he did, and obviously... He was jealous when anyone else would come in, and what he didn't like, I, I think, I pro he probably didn't like you that much. I'm just assuming you're going to answer this, but you were getting tight with Elvis, and Elvis was starting to listen to you above and beyond what he was trying, how he was trying to control him. Would that be a good analysis? Yeah. Well, Elvis had made a decision before we even started the special that he was going to, uh, he wasn't going to listen to Colonel Parker, and he was going right. to listen to anything that I had to say. So. I never knew that until afterwards when Priscilla told me that when Elvis came home from my first meeting with him, he said, I have a gut feeling about this Pinder kid and, uh, you know, I'm going to go with whatever he wants me to do. And no matter, what the, no matter what the colonel says. Well, I mean, what, what was, I mean, you're California, you're, you're like us, you're a Southern California Beach Boy guy. He's Memphis, Tennessee, singing country. How, how did that ever how that meeting ever occur? Like, why would he think there's this, how did he know about you? Or, or did because someone else know? How, how'd you meet him? Preceding that, I had done a major special with, with Petula Clark and Harry Belafonte. And right. it became an international right. news story when Petula touched Harry on his forearm. Yeah, put it, yeah. So Petula and, uh, is a white female. Well, Harry Belafonte. Blonde, blue-eyed. Blonde, blue-eyed. Then Harry Belafonte was African-American black. Right. And there was a scene where they come out, I remember, where she touches his arm. Oh, and or did they dance? No, no, he, he, he touches her arm and they go, cut that. You cannot use that with... Who said that? I, I think a lot of people said that. You can't have... Well, no, but wife. Steve let it go. It was Steve's show. Well, no, but what, it was the representative. We were sponsored okay. by Plymouth Cars. Okay. Oh. And the representative oh, from Plymouth is was, was uh, racist. Yeah. Nothing... Nothing else to say. Right. And he did not want a black man on the show, period. Oh, we didn't even so want him on the show. Of, Forget about the blonde touching. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we had a lot of confrontations before we ever oh. started the show. And uh, Whose idea was that to touch? Whose idea was it? There was no idea. Yeah, it, it just happened came naturally. organically. It right, like happened. normal. They were singing an anti-war song. Right. And uh, they were both very emotional while they were singing. So it wasn't even a strategic the, thing. It's just the, like, this is normal stuff. 
And you got the racist calling. Okay, I got you. And, uh, but that's what attracted uh, NBC to call me to, because they had a deal with Colonel Parker uh, to finance. Uh, Elvis couldn't get any financing for his next movie, or the Colonel couldn't. So they went to the networks, which were, they had lots of money. And he asked NBC if they would finance Change a Habit with Mary Tyler Moore uh, in Elvis's next movie. And uh, Tom Sarnoff, who was running NBC at the time, wanted to do it. And he said, uh, we'll put up the money for the movie if Elvis will do a one-hour television special. Oh, I see. Leverage. Elvis had already told Colonel Parker he didn't want to do television anymore. He hated it. It wasn't his turf. Got it. And uh, when when he told me that, I said, what's your turf? And he said, making records. And I said, okay, then you make a record and I'll put pictures to it. And, there you go. and he said, that's the key that, that made him relax and, and believe in me. And, uh, you know, it was... Uh, my experience with Elvis was less than a year uh, from the first day to the last day that I said goodbye to him and I never talked to him or saw him again. Gotcha. Uh, but uh, the colonel, you know, he was threatened by Anne Margaret when they made Viva Las Vegas mm-hmm. and she was persona non grata uh, like I was after we had done our thing with him. And uh, Elvis was, for whatever reason, he was afraid to stand up to the colonel. I mean, the colonel. It seemed like at the end he had was so too, much power, psychological power over him, or something. Well, he knew where all his his weaknesses right. were. He knew where, I mean, he knew where all the buttons were right. to control him. And if he couldn't control him, he'd go to his father, who he played like a Stradivarius. Mm-hmm. And his father was, uh, you know, had felt the colonel was their ticket out of poverty. And he didn't want to defy anything that the colonel wanted. And he told Elvis, do it, you know. And Elvis listened to his parents. He was a kid from the South. Right. Respect uh, your kids. Respect your mom and dad. And, uh, you know, but I don't think his mother liked Colonel Parker very much, Gladys. And uh, But I had no knowledge of Elvis other than I saw him on the Ed Sullivan show when I wasn't even in show business and liked him. Right. And then after that, he became a character, right? A caricature of himself. What and about that uh, one? There's this one thing that I remember you telling me I mean, way back in the day. It's probably in your documentary, um, but I remember this from 40 years ago. You said, and we we're talking about Elvis. There was a time where he came up to your studio or something, and you're, you're, he was saying how great he is with a Colonel Parker. And you go, "I bet you can go on the street right now. No one, no one would even ask for your autograph." Well, like Sunset Boulevard. You have the essence of it, but that's yeah. not okay. What so tell really me, Ken, on my memory. I mean, do you, okay. do you recall that? I remember Elvis walking in the office, and our office overlooked Sunset, Sunset Boulevard. Boulevard right? He was looking out the window, staring. He came, he came to my office around four in the afternoon, and he came in and he was staring out the window. And I said, "What are you looking at?" And he said, "Oh, nothing. I just..." Uh, and I said, uh, what do you think would happen if you and I went out there and just stood on the street on Sunset Boulevard? And 
he smiled and he said, what, what do you think would happen? And I said, well, <laughs> Nothing. Uh, you know, do you, do you think they'd tear your clothes off? Do you, yeah. do you think there'd be a, a mini riot or right. whatever? And, uh, and that was the end of it. And it wasn't until two or three days later when he walked in the office and he said, okay, Steve, let's go. And I said, where are we going? And he said, we're going to test out your theory. We're going to go down on Sunset Boulevard. The truth of the matter is that I don't, we didn't advertise that Elvis was in Los Angeles at the time. Right. Uh, I think there were so many characters walking around Acting like Elvis Hollywood or... trying to look like Elvis yeah. with it's the long sideburn. Right. I think they thought he was yeah, another impossible. lookalike. Right. They didn't realize it was really Elvis because they might have tore they his claws up if they did know it was really him. That's true. And uh, But I never told him that. And when we went back upstairs, you know, he was convinced that, uh, you know, the magic was gone and the audience's had passed him up, and now we're into the Stones and the Beatles and, and all the uh, right. British invasion. Right, the British invasion. And, uh, <clears throat> but, but it built more confidence in him trusting me. And uh, I've always said in a lot of interviews, I think all of us needed Jiminy Cricket on our shoulder. No, Somebody right. whispering in our ear saying, exactly. tell the truth, you know. And uh, I never lied to Elvis. I told him exactly what I felt. In fact, one time, uh, you know, which has been quoted a lot lately, but he asked me what I thought of his career. First question. And I said, I think it's in the toilet. <laughs> and uh, at first, I didn't know how he was going right. to take it. You know, it just blurted out. I mean, it was the truth. And then he burst out laughing and he said, finally, somebody's leveling with me and telling right. me the truth. That's the best way to be. You can't get anywhere without the truth, right? You can, oh, you're doing great, and what, what happens after that? How remarkable. I'm going to ask you, since you... So, um, do you mind if I tell... Uh, do you mind if you say... Uh, I can ask how old you are? Because I think this is incredible, what you've, what you've done. And you're still going. And it's so amazing to me. He's 45. Are you 45? Okay. <laughs> 45. Because the way you look, the way you are, what you've done, and how, how you keep and going... Sharp sharp your memory my god you're just you're you don't even names yeah you don't even remember first names first and last names tight title i don't i can't remember that you got like genius mind how you recall so good so that's what i was going to say like well i yeah. i had a very funny story on the emmys uh you know the emmy scripts are <laughs> like you know at least uh three to five inches thick. Yeah. And they have hundreds of camera shots and so forth in them. And uh, I usually, right before we start doing a show, if especially if it's live, live, uh, I will go out and uh, just spend a minute just, you know, uh, mentally relaxing myself. And, uh, and then I walk back into the control room to start directing. I walked back in the control room on this one Emmy show and no script. It's not there. I can't believe it. I mean, I'm, I'm starting this live national, sh international hey. show. What do you uh, mean no script? millions of people and I can't, there's, can't no, find it? there's no script sitting on my, my director, uh, you know, panel. Right. And it turns out that the CBS 
program director. Uh, he picked it up by mistake and oh, thought no. it was his script. Oh, no. Walks out. Well, luckily, like five seconds before right. we're on the air, somebody found him and ran in and threw the script at me. And I opened it up and take one. You know, we're on the air and we're doing it. And uh, Jeez. that was... That was panic time because as good as my memory is, and I, I, I do have kind of a photographic memory once I do a show, yeah. I remember every single, Detail. unfortunately, right. every <laughs> everything good and bad, right. uh, you know, in the script, and I, I know it pretty cold and so forth. Uh, Central Park, I improvised that whole thing. I had it all... Uh, scripted until the rain hit, and then I said, "The hell with the." Did script. you guys even know rain was going to come? We were warned that there was a storm heading our way, but the irony is, it was a bright, sunny day in New York. And, right, that's uh, how the movie. Right. There was sunshine everywhere except where we were. It, it it was it was one shot where you could see the sun in the. Circle perimeter around uh, where we shot in Central Park, and and now we're having this not just rain, like we're having deluge. A, a, a deluge of of uh, you know lightning and rain and what have you, and all of our uh, electronic equipment was blowing out. We ended up with just having a 10k light, uh, you know, lighting her, which which the reviewers said it looked like it was lit by God. <laughs> and it did. It was fabulous, and uh, and you could see it worked that out. So you normally, made it, yeah. you normally, made it you don't see rain on an electronic camera, uh, and that's why they put milk, milk right. in it and so forth, so it'll show up. Right. We had no problem with Central Park, boy. It was just pouring, and you could see the rain coming down. And she was a real trooper. I mean, she. Uh, uh, we were really worried that uh, there could be some real serious uh, incidents, you know, uh, of uh, people being hurt while they were leaving the park and so forth and so on. And we did. I have a lot of mugging that went on, uh, you know, that uh, people talk about to this day. I run into people who say I was there and and, and I was having lunch in the. Uh, in uh, there's a very famous restaurant nearby in the park, and uh, they evidently the uh, uh, you know uh, the customers at the restaurant were attacked uh, and jewelry ripped off of their necks and and wrists and so forth and uh, still you know yeah still was, still it's been today, going on for years for a decade. <clears throat> well, Steve, listen. You did this documentary. We already heard the buzz is incredible. It's all over. We all know what's going to happen. I think that this is the one that people been waiting for. The first time somebody heard a story about Elvis firsthand. And I wanted to thank you, but I want to also thank you because what I really wanted to know is the way I looked up to you. Uh, the, the, and I, I'm just going to tell the truth. When I was on a set with you, the kindest, most respectful never yelled i've never heard you yell in my life i've never heard you yell and i've been your i mean i'm i was at your house all the time and people had the utmost respect on the set and they would just listen to you and you always were cool like you had the number one cool factor you're always just in a good mood calm and very methodical 
And I've been on other sets where people aren't like that in directors because they have this certain power and they have an ego and it's they're yelling and screaming. So I wanted people to also see what you've done because it's not just something you came across as Elvis special, but you have a whole history of music. So so the the King of Rock was led by this Steve who started in Motown, came up through spinning records as a DJ in the war. And so it's almost like it was meant to happen, you two to meet. Well, you know, the, the, the Motown has kind of blown out of proportion. I did do a series with Smokey. Yeah. And, and, well, that's uh, what I knew. So it's called the Motown Review. Yes. Right. And uh, it had all the Motown acts in it. But, uh, you know, I'm very proud in the documentary when Anita Mann, who is considered one of America's top uh, dance choreographers uh, in television, uh, she said, uh, I think Steve is colorblind. He doesn't pay any attention to... <laughs> That's a good to, compliment. Right. We all and it be. was a great compliment. Right. And, and I've always felt that. I never, right, I never set out to make a statement. Uh, it, all these things it's that have happened to me right. just happened. Right. And I had to deal with them right. on the spot. Right, it wasn't like you're in the Civil War. Well, your war. actions make the statement. Yeah, you're just a real deal. You're just like, okay... Steve, well, any, I appreciate it. Do you have anything else you want to say? Uh, it's you great. I can't believe forty years have yeah. passed. Since I can't, I've seen I can't you believe guys. I see you, and it's like and so weird. I just like I've seen you yesterday. Like that's when you know you're tight with somebody. You could come back to their world in forty years, and I still feel like I was. I'm sitting in Brentwood with you, and we're just BSing. It's so it's so awesome. So I really thank you for allowing us to come well, into your house. I appreciate it, this. and I appreciate both you guys and your mom. And your sister. Yeah. Hi. And, Judy, uh, Benji, all of them. Yeah. yeah. They'll say uh, hi. So can I end this uh, doing my Elvis impression? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> Is that good? Yeah, it was really good. All right. And your lip went up too. Hey. <laughs> Frank, Frank has left the building. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Thanks, all right. everyone. That's uh, a wrap, guys. Yeah. You know what to do. Thanks, so you guys. Wrap. And we appreciate it. Look, I was going to get my headphones off. Yeah. I didn't wear headphones. Yay. Wow. <laughs>